right, Genesis chapter 6 is our location in the scripture. Genesis chapter 6. I wanted to say a couple things before we get rolling. I wanted to say a thank you to each one who uh, gave a gift last week. It was very encouraging, the cards and the gifts, and I appreciate your appreciation. If that's the right way to say that. Um, but it is a blessing to serve here as pastor and to know your love and your support. Um, there's a lot of different things coming together, different open doors, uh, projects getting done. Um, I'm very encouraged by some things that I'm seeing happening in the church, and I'm, um, I just feel like there's a lot of details coming together, God's provision. Um, someone did some projects for the church this week, and um, various things happening, and open doors. Um, thank you for praying for the church and praying for me. Genesis 6 is where we find ourselves, and as we uh, look at the scripture today, we are going to be reading verse 5, well, let's read verse 4, excuse me, verse 4 down to verse 13, Genesis 6, 4 through 13, there are a couple of folks that can read for us today, all right, there's one, there's two, and we'll go with two then, oh, okay. All right, Deborah, if you would read verse 4 to verse 8, and then Jeremiah, Pastor Jeremiah, if you read verse 9 to verse 13. Yeah, I'm sorry, Genesis 6, verse 4. Pastor Jeremiah, if you would pray for us, please. Amen. 
Last week when we left off, uh, we did one through four in uh, scripture last week. We did not spend much time at all on verse four. And so I wanted to pick up there. And someone asked after the service, they said, what about, uh, what about the giants? And so I didn't want to get on to verse five without covering that. Verse four says there were giants in the earth. And the Hebrew word there is Nephilim, Nephilim, depending on how you say it. And we find that word elsewhere in the Bible. We find it later um, after the flood uh, with reference to other giants. And so um, I understand it to mean that there were giants, there were strong, tall people. And it does, it's possible that it's due to the, you know, the intermarriage of, you know, families and things that maybe some of those giants developed through some of that, you know, breeding and, and different genes were exacerbated or so on. So Esther, if you could bring that up here, that would be excellent. Thanks. Um, Genesis 6 verse 4 says there were giants. Now, some people that take the interpretation of the angels intermarrying with humans, they say that these giants were, you know, caused by this intermarriage. However, the thing to note is it does say in verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. So what we find from a careful reading is that the giants were there before this action took place of the sons of God and the daughters of men. And, um, and so it's important to see that if, if the giants were because of that, then they wouldn't be present before that, right? And then we find them also after the flood, um, the same Hebrew word, the same references found after the flood. Well, there again, if that was from some demonic thing, then it would seem to be reoccurring after the flood. Um, my understanding is just that it's a reference to giants. Um, I mean, even in our day, we have some tall people in the world, you know. Uh, I think there's some seven foot, mm, over, over seven foot tall people. And depending on the situations and the elements, that can, can still happen today. Um, so I'm going to pick up then with verse five. Is there any question or anything on verse four before we go further? Question or comment? Comments are welcome too. All right. But I don't think we can recover the whole sons of God, daughters of men thing today. I think we finished that last week. Okay. Verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What we find here in verse 5 is um, just, there's important truth about God here. We usually get real honed in on the evil which is a key point, but it says God saw that the wickedness of man was great. And humans want to think that God doesn't see or that he doesn't care, but God saw the wickedness of the earth. Do you know even today when people see wickedness or breakdown or simple things around them, sometimes we think that God doesn't see, right? Where are you, God, right? And we think that because judgment hasn't fallen yet on these people. But we need to remember that God withholding his judgment does not mean that God doesn't see. He does see. And that tells me that God cares, right? God cares. I think in Proverbs, the Bible says this, the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his goings. In other words, God thinks about what man does. And that should say something to us, right? So not only does God sees, God sees, and then God thinks. These things tell us that um, 
that God is supremely interested. It tells us that the idea that God wound up the earth like a clock, set it on the shelf and walked away is not a true picture of God. He sees, he thinks, and then we also see this. God responds. See? And this is God interacting with man. This is, this is God responding to what man is doing. Uh, the verse says that God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what we see in verse, the, verse 5 is God sees. And then in verse 6, it says, And it grieved the Lord that he had made the man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. That's God thinks, right? And then as it goes forward in the text, verse 7, the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created. That's God's response, right? So this pattern is replayed over and over and over again. God sees, God thinks, God responds. And we must, just because God is still at this stage, we must never imagine he's not thinking. And just because he's seeing and thinking, we must not imagine that he will never respond, right? Um, I think it was in the Proverbs reading today that says that we shouldn't take revenge, I'm paraphrasing, because God is the one who should take revenge, right? Well, a lot of times people take revenge right at this point. This is where revenge happens by us. It's because God is seeing and thinking, but he hasn't yet responded, and we say, I need revenge, right? So we can see this, this unfolding, this wickedness of man, and, um, and it says that it was increasing, and it was such that, that Evil was, was exponentially going forward. There's a progression of evil, and it says that it was only evil continually. This speaks of a, a daily thing. It speaks of an um, ongoing, regular occurrence that man was not looking to God. Man was full of evil. This evil was, was taking over the earth, and... Um, you know, it's one thing to be evil, but then to say only evil continually, right? Sometimes we talk about the evil of man, or that we use the word depravity of man. And w I'm thankful that most humans are not as evil as they could be, right? We don't, aren't as evil as possible. But what was happening at this time is that the evil was progressing, and it was starting to become only evil and continually evil. And so I don't know precisely how bad it was, but we do have a little bit of a description. Later, it talks about violence and corruption, and we know some of those things are the, the measuring of what's being discussed. Can I remind us that the Bible says that when the Lord comes, it will be as in the days of Noah, right? As in the days of Noah is what it will be like when the Lord returns. So what we saw, what we read about here is something that's going to happen again where evil will continue. Now, it could be that that specifically is referring to the tribulation era, and the coming of the Lord is not referencing the rapture, but is referencing his full coming to earth in his second coming. Um, and the one other thing I want to point out is that throughout world history, evil does increase, but there are cycles, there are ups and downs, right? I don't know if you've ever looked at a graph of like a market Let's say people say the, the stock market's going up, right? And the stock market goes like this and, you know, and like this and, right? So that's an upward. I should have put a downward one on here because we're talking about down. So if you do a downward one, it's the same thing where you have these ups and downs and, right? But you have a downward trend here. 
So sometimes in history we say, well, things are going to get really bad and, you know, it's going to be awful. Let's put a big drop off there, right? Well, you know, I might live from here to here, right? Is the trend downward or upward, right? I guess some people over there can't see. If I live from here to here, it gets better throughout my life, right? But the overall trend is still down, right? So when we talk about revivals and renewals and awakenings and things, praise God for those. But the overall trend is down. Um, and there, there is a, a branch of Christianity that teaches the world gets better and better and better, and then Christ returns, right? Well, we don't see that in this text. And then it says, as in the days of, the, of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. So I don't see how that fits with the data. All right, any question or comment before we go on to verse 6? All right, I've got to erase my elaborate charts here. Okay, so verse, oh, yes. Uh, do we have a mic? All right. Matt is our mic guy. Anyone after Pastor Jeremiah? Okay. Mm. Right. That's a good point. Right. But, you know, they're looking at their actions, but God sees even their hearts. Right, right. All right, so evil is not only seen in action, is it? It's also in our thinking. So that's a good point to bring out. Anyone else? Okay, verse 7 goes on to say, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created. Oh, I'm sorry, we're on verse 6. Skipped in verse 6. And it grieved the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. All right, let's talk about the, this verse. This is the stage where we have God thinking, all right? He sees, and now we have him thinking. And thinking is maybe even a weak word. Feeling is, is definitely the idea, too. The, in the Hebrew, there's two different words in verse 6, okay? In verse 6, we have grieved showing up twice. All right, they're separate words. And the first word, grieved, there is more of the idea of to be sorry, to regret, or to change the mind. All right, so I think the old King James uses the word repent. Um, it's also translated be sorry. And we see this take place, and it's kind of a tough thing to process when we talk about um, God, because there's some scriptures that say God does not repent, and um, we need to discuss that a little bit. But let's first, before we discuss it, let's see the contrast, and let's just hold your spot here and turn to Genesis 1. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, and in verse 31, the day he made man and the animals, some of the animals, at the end of all of it, Genesis 1, 31, it says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was good, it, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So after the day of creation, he says, it is very good. Now in Genesis 6 and verse number 6, it says, it grieved the Lord that he had made man on the earth. It doesn't say he grieved him that he made the animals. It doesn't say him he grieved him that he made the water or the sky or the stars or any of that. It says it grieved him that he had made man on the earth. 
And so when we talk about God being sorry or repenting or changing his mind, or what we can see is that in John 1, or Genesis 1.31, God is pleased. It is good, he says. I've made man, it's good. In Genesis 6, he has a different take on the situation. He says, it's bad. It's not good, right? It is good. It is not good. And what we find is that God himself does not change, but he works with man throughout time, right? And in Genesis 1.31, God's interaction with his new creation man was that God expressed to man, it is good that I have made you. In Genesis 6, God has a different expression that he gives to man. He says, it is not good that I have made you. He is responding to mankind, right? God himself doesn't change. In eternity past, he knew what he would say in Genesis 1.31. He knew what he would say in Genesis 6, verse 6. And so when we talk about that word repent or change the mind or to be sorry, it's not a reference to sin, for sure, God's own sin. There's no such thing. And even this idea of change the mind is God had his mind set from the beginning, but he is simply interacting with man in response to him. In fact, anytime you find this word being used in reference to God, it is always in connection with something that man has done. If I'm not mistaken, every time you see it, it is a response to man. And so God does respond to his people. He sees and he responds. And it says he's grieved here. It grieved him in his heart. God has a heart, and by that we don't mean a pumping chamber of blood, but we mean a spirit that has feelings and that senses and that um, is aware of what people are doing and he cares. If you think of the idea of, of grief, grief indicates that God loves. Um, let's, let's use a kid, for instance, right? If you have a small child who is five years old, have you ever been grieved by something they have done? Yes, okay. There, there are other people who have five-year-old kids who do the exact same thing and they don't care. Have you ever observed this? Some parents would be like, why did you do that? Why did you slap your sister? And other parents just let their kids slap their sister and they don't say anything, right? Oh, well, who cares? Now, which one loves their child? the one who cares and says, why did you do that, right? But if you don't care about your child, you just let them do whatever they want. Who cares? I don't care, you know? And what we see when it says God was grieved, it means he cares, and it shows that he loves his creatures, and he wants them to do well, and he cares about how they treat one another. So God does care how we live, and it reveals his love. So is there any question or comment on verse number six? Okay. Verse number seven says, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it grieves me that I have made them. Now we have him saying, he's broadening now, and he's saying the, the beasts and the creeping things and the fowls. He says, it grieves me that I have made them. But what's what we're going to see in just a minute is God does not kill all the humans. God does not kill all the beasts, right? There is a, a killing of some, but not of all. I want, to, I want to talk about this for a minute because some people are shocked to hear or to read that God would 
kill people, right? They'll say things like, how could a loving God ever send something like the flood? How could that be? Well, there's a few things I want to point out. First is that we are created. We are all created beings. And who created us? God did. Now, I've heard this used by parents. Probably not the best thing to say. But some parents will say, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. All right? Usually they're joking. Maybe not the best joke. But if there's someone who actually has a right to say something like that, it's God. Because he did actually create us. He did give us life. And so the idea that the created being can say to the creator, you can't do X, Y, Z with me, right? That is illogical and it's immoral, right? But secondly, I want you to think of this. Death, originally, death was not in the perfect plan of God that he intended for Adam and Eve in the garden. And he warned them about death, did he not? He said, the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. So death was warned already before this ever happened. There was a warning to stay away from that because that brings death. Because man had sinned, death was a thing, and death will happen certainly, right? For all humans up to this point, saving Enoch, I guess, death will happen certainly. The question here is just the acceleration of that, right? These people are already set to die, but God said, you're going to die sooner, and you're all going to die in the same event. And, you're gonna, and I'm going to wipe the earth out. So death, death was already promised. Death was already warned about. And when man entered sin, then death became a certainty. But with the flood, God moves up people's death date to 120 years, he said. I'm going to put up with this. And after that, no more. And all of a sudden, when the flood comes, everyone dies except those on the ark. Does God warn us about death in the Bible? Yes, he does. Does God provide a solution to death in the Bible? Yes, he does. And this is, the, this is such an important factor, is that death is real. The, question, the only question is timing. That's the only question. And we don't know the timing in our situation. For these, God gave them a timeline. He said 120 years, and that's it. He told Noah, you preach. He gave them 100 years. He said the flood's coming. They're building the boat. So people were warned of this ahead of time. But I want to point out that even today... Because death is certain, does that mean we should just live any way we want? Well, that, a worldly person might say that, right? Do we all know? Who, who here can help me out with what YOLO means? Who knows? Raise your hand if you know what YOLO means. Some of the younger people are raising their hand. YOLO. Anyone? Anybody know what YOLO means? Why don't you tell us now? You only live once. All right? YOLO. Y-O-L-O. You only live once. And so usually people say YOLO when they're spending too much money, when they're doing something dangerous, when they're doing something thrilling. You only live once. You only live once, so go out and do it. Well, it is true that you only live once, but you know what's interesting? If you live a life of sin, and you embrace sin, and you jump full on into sin, and you do all sorts of sin, does death come sooner for you? Usually. Now, there's a few rare exceptions of, you know, 95-year-olds who drink whiskey and they smoke a cigar a day and they do a bunch of other risky behavior 
But most of the time when you embrace evil, your death date comes sooner. And all I'm pointing out is there's a relationship between sin and death. Sin brings death. The Bible says that. And more important than this life is to know you have eternal life, right? But secondarily to that, the Bible teaches us truth to help us avoid dying early, right? Is there somewhere in the Bible where God tells us if you do right, you'll live longer? Is, there, is that somewhere in the Bible? Yes. Uh, that's right. It was given to the Jew first, but it is reaffirmed in the New Testament in Ephesians for all of God's children. When you honor your father and mother, you will live longer on the earth, right? And so I'm, I'm bringing this out to show that death was already coming. God accelerated it because of their sin. And this is a pattern that still happens today. All right, verse 7, he says, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Is there any question or comment on verse 7? Looking left, looking left. All right. You know, uh, we have one over here. Is there anyone after Pastor Jeremiah with a question or a comment? All questions welcome. Okay. They deserve to die. Yes, yes. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's good you made that more clear that um, because God is creator, he has the right to take life. I think it's in Ecclesiastes where it says, speaking of someone that, that died, it said, and it's a great line, then the spirit returned unto the God who gave it. And it's saying someone died and the spirit returned to the God who gave it. And each of us has a soul, a spirit within us, and it was given us by God. And one day that soul and that spirit will return to the God who gave it. And it will, will either be there in, in grace and in comfort and in, in, in glory or will be there in, in punishment and suffering. But the point is, is that the spirit returns to the God who gave it. So he has the right to call our spirit at any time. It's sort of like uh, when you have a loan that's past due, it can be called at any time, right? We have a, a wage that is due to be paid, right? Now, if we're saved, it's paid eternally, but we still die physically. Uh, any other question or comment? All right, Deborah is next.
yet. All right, that's good. Anyone else? Question or comment? Okay, now let's look at verse 8. Such a great verse in the Bible. And it says here, and but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. All right, I like this. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Let me remind us of what it does not say. It does not say that Noah earned grace, right? Which if you know the definition of grace, you couldn't use this word with it anyway. What is the definition of grace? Something you don't deserve. Kindness or favor, right? Unmerited favor, right? It speaks of a kindness or a graciousness or a goodness. Can't use the word grace in the definition, okay. Uh, a goodness that is extended undeserved, unearned, unworthy. And it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So while the earth was becoming more and more evil, here we have Noah and he is finding grace. Now, grace means that God is treating Noah kindly. He is treating Noah better than Noah deserves. And Noah finds this grace. Now, I don't know, the word find is a little interesting. We probably think of find as like finding something on the ground, right? Accidentally. You might think of find and accidentally. Well, it's not accidentally. Um, there's, there's more purpose to it. But what I want to point out is the grace was there to be found. Right? He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And, you know, here's God. And let's, I know God doesn't work this way, but let's just say we have all of his traits emanating from him, right? So here's God and here's grace. And let's do some other traits. Here's truth and here's eternal. All these different attributes of who God is. All right. Now I know that this isn't a perfect diagram, but here's grace and here's Noah. And everyone, God is there, right? God still loves his earth. Down through history, others have known the Lord and have known God. And everyone else is following after sin. Everyone else is seeking after sin. Everyone else is wrapped up in other things. But Noah finds grace. He gets connected to the grace of God. And it says it's in the eyes of the Lord. So another way we could think of this is not only Noah found grace, but then it says in the eyes of the Lord. So now we have grace... And we have Noah all together. Uh, not knowing. We'll get it. We'll get it right here. Noah. And it's in the eyes of God. So God is looking at Noah through the eyes of grace as well. So Noah has grace. And he is connected to God by this grace. And when God looks at Noah, he sees him in grace. And this is a good place for Noah to be, isn't it? Now the big, this is like the million dollar question. How... Did Noah get there? Right? Was it an accident? We already said that was not how it happened. Is there a verse in the Bible that helps us know how Noah found this grace? The answer is yes. Does anybody know where it would be found? What's that? Yes, in a very famous chapter. Yes, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11.7 says this, By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not yet seen, 
moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness that is by faith. Now, I don't know if you were here on Wednesday night. If you weren't here on Wednesday night, you can listen to it on Apple Podcasts or Facebook. But on Wednesday night, we talked about the, the righteousness that is by faith. We said there's a righteousness by works, which is insufficient in God's eyes, but there's a righteousness by faith. And Noah, by faith, believed God, and he found grace in the eyes of God. Grace and faith go together in the Bible. People do not have grace without having faith. And faith, I like to use the analogy of a straw, right? If you have a sealed container and you have a straw in it, and you're dying of thirst, right? How many of you have ever been dying of thirst? Well, not literally dying, right? Thirsty. How many of you have ever been thirsty? All right, we've been thirsty. And you say, oh, i got to have some of that water. i got to have some of that water. And there's the water, right? And you're here, and the water's there, and it's got a cover and everything, but there's a straw on it. And when you take that and you suck on the straw... Up goes the water through the straw into your mouth, and then you say, ah, right? The straw is the channel through which the water could pass up the cup and into your mouth. And faith, when we believe God, is the channel through which the grace flows down to us. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So uh, Noah found grace, and he found it by faith. Let's keep going. And uh, Oh, no, there's one verse in the New Testament I wanted to read. Romans 5.20, I think it talks about this relationship between faith and grace. Let me just read it for us here. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. And it says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Oh, here it is. It's a little different. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. As I thought about that verse, sin abounded on the earth, right? Sin was exploding. Sin was going on. And then here is Noah. Noah, in the midst of a world that is doing evil, here's Noah, and he finds grace. Where sin abounded, grace abounded more. How? Because all of humanity would have been lost Right? Had God not in his plan and providence and Noah and his decision and turning to God, this was the channel through which humans would continue. Right? Without Noah, that would be the end of God's work on the earth. All right, so verse 9 continues on. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. This is the second human being in the Bible that said to walk with God. And again, we find, uh, actually, this is the first, I think it's the first usage of the word just in the English uh, Bible. Noah was a just man. The word just does not mean he was just a man, okay? It means he was just, and to be just is to be righteous. Noah was righteous. Now, again, the question is, how did he become righteous? It was through faith in God. It was not just through him trying harder and doing better, but it was through a faith and a belief in God himself. So Noah is a just man, and notice that next little line, perfect in his generations. Now, I did 
look up this word and study this word and read this out because I was trying to figure out. At first, I was like, well, maybe it's referring to, you know, he was of the line of Seth and all that. But I think it's actually just referring to his present situation. Um, think of it this way. Do you remember how people lived for such a long time? Remember, people are living 900 years and 800 years. So Noah lived for hundreds of years. And even in our day, we break down generations by section. So there's Generation Z, and then there's Millennials, and there's Baby Boomers, and what are some of the other ones? What's that? Millennials, okay. Yeah. Uh, Gen Z, okay. Gen X, I think, Xers. So I don't, does anyone know which one they belong to? I think I'm a millennial. I think, I think that's what I am. Anyway, is that, yeah. Well, we're, I think we're the same age, don't we? Yeah, that's true. Sometimes there's a little argument about certain years. But what I'm pointing out is that in Noah's time, there were people that, you know, the first hundred years of his life, they lived and then they died. And then the next hundred or 150 years, right, there's, there's succeeding generations that are passing away as he lives. And the Bible is painting a picture, I think, that it's saying Noah was just and he was perfect in his generation. And it meant as the people around him turned away from God, Noah kept his faith in God and he believed God and he trusted God and he looked to God. And if you could visualize it in a picture, when he's born, there's a number of God-fearing, God-believing people. And as he keeps living, that number keeps dropping. And by the time the flood hits, he's the only one left with his family, right? With his family. But remember how I said last time how his grandpa passed away and then his dad passed away? I think it was his grandpa that died the year of the flood. And his dad had died five years prior to the flood. And so... Others that, that may have believed God and, and loved God and, and had a relationship with God, they're falling off and they're falling away. And the Bible is saying, here is Noah, and he was a righteous man, and he was just in his generation. Throughout the years of his life, he looked to the Lord in faith, and he walked with God. He had a relationship with God. That is why God would tell him, hey, there's going to be a flood. Hey, you need to build a boat, because Noah was already walking with God. There was a relationship ongoing in his connection with God. Um, Enoch is the other one that's mentioned in the Bible as having walked with God. And this picture, to me, is just a reminder that no matter what the world does around us, we always look to God. There are some people who say things like this, well, I'll do right as long as it's not too hard, right? I'll do right as long as there's some other people who do right with me, right? I'll, I'll look to the Lord, you know, but, but if things get too difficult, then I'm done. I'm out, right? And Noah was not that way. And I've heard it said once, and I think it's a really good line. You and God are a majority. And it doesn't matter what everyone else does. It doesn't matter what the society or the world. Now, it matters in the sense that God cares and all that. But for you, what you do should not be determined by those around you, right? Have we ever heard of peer pressure? Yeah, peer pressure, doing what everyone else does, right? Noah was not that way. He kept his eyes on God. He walked with God. And around him, violence, deceit, wickedness. Who cares about God? You only live once, right? All these other things. And Noah walked with God. So Noah really stands out. He really sticks out from the rest. Um, 
Let's do a couple more and then we'll take final questions, all right? It says, that, uh, verse 10, And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We understand these to be his only children. The reason is that the Bible says that he saved his household. And so I've heard some people theorize, oh, Noah had a bunch of kids and these were just the ones that got saved. But to me, when I read about Noah saved his household, I, I think that he only had these three children. And of course, their wives were also saved. Um, other than that, I don't think there's much to say about uh, verse 10. Verse 11, the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. Two things are, are brought up here, corruption and violence. Corruption and violence, and sometimes they go together, don't they? But the corruption we usually think of involving deceit, um, lying, uh, falsehoods, uh, is the idea of corruption, not doing the, the right thing or the honest thing. And there is corruption today. There's corruption, the Bible talks about spiritual wickedness in high places. There's corruption sometimes even in job situations and in families and, and things happen, corruption. And then it says, um, it also uses the word violence. The earth was filled with violence. So we imagine murder, we imagine assault, uh, perhaps rape. Um, there's a strange phrase when it says, as in the days of Noah in the New Testament, it, it describes it more. And it says they were marrying and given in marriage. And that kind of, I don't quite understand that precisely because there's nothing sinful about marrying. Like getting married is not a sin, right? So I'm wondering if that means that they were marrying and, you know, hopping around. If they were marrying and remarrying and, and they weren't committed or, or if it just speaks of the, the act of marriage instead of marriage itself or something, because marriage itself is not sinful, right? But it, it lists that in the New Testament as in the days of Noah. They were marrying and given in marriage. So perhaps it, it does refer to a, a, um, a uh, remarrying or moving from wife to wife sort of situation, husband to husband. So there's the violence and then there's the corruption. God says, I, uh, see here, and God said to Noah, no, verse 12, God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now we understand that Noah is accepted from this broad description, but everyone else had corrupted their way. And the corruption was so deep and it was so firm and dark that Noah preached for a hundred years and no one listened except his wife and his three sons and their wives. Verse 13 God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. We find here that God says it's time. And can I remind us all that there eventually will be a judgment day. Eventually, judgment will come. God is gracious. He is merciful. He holds back his wrath. He gives space for men to repent, to turn to him, to believe him, to trust him and look to him. But eventually there's a day of judgment. Eventually each person will be judged. And this pattern that we're studying in Genesis 6 is still a pattern that applies to today. The world says, oh yeah, God doesn't care. I've been doing this for 20 years. Well, 20 years, okay. That's 20 years. But God doesn't operate on 20-year timetables, right? But the fact is, Judgment Day is coming. The people in Noah's day would say, oh yeah, you've been preaching about this for 89 years, you silly bozo, right? 
Well, but God had said 120 years would be the length that he would wait. And so we, we, we have to remember the lack of judgment of God is always temporary. It's always temporary. And sometimes we get deeply bothered when we see corruption, when we see violence that goes unpunished, right? And especially when it happens to us, right? It's very disturbing, right? And say, God, buddy, why don't you care? What are you doing? Judgment day is coming. It is coming. And so we must not expect God to live on our timetables. All right, questions or comments as we wrap up down through verse 13. Pastor Jeremiah, we'll start with you, and then next we'll have Esther. All right. Anyone after Esther? Question or comment? All questions welcome, all comments welcome. Okay. Right, right. That is broadly true in, uh, in principle. The opposite, in a negative example, that is Lot, where he had two of his daughters leave the city with him, but his sons-in-law laughed at him and mocked him when he came with the message of judgment, right? And part of the issue of why they didn't take him seriously was his life, the hypocrisy. And they, they saw through some of that, and it affected the message. It's a good example. Yes? 
Yes. Kind of always associate that with the fact that it was just showing that they weren't listening to his message. Like they weren't planning for judgment to happen. They were distracted. Marrying him when he when he was going to have a wedding plan. Oh, during that hundred years where he's saying judgment's coming, people just got married anyway and lived their life as though. They didn't expect there to be any judgment. I see. Yeah. Um, And then that's just. Yeah. That's a good, uh, another way to think about that phrase. That's good. Anyone else? Question or comment? Okay. So I think some of our takeaways today is that grace is freely given by God and it's received by faith. The life that we live needs to be strong and bright no matter how many people around us do not follow the Lord. And also that our testimony, the way we live, impacts the message. And the message will be strongest and brightest for those who see our life the most. So some really good applications there. All right, well, let's be dismissed in prayer. Pastor Jeremiah, would you pray for us? Amen.